Welcome to another episode of Tell Me Another, a podcast dedicated to telling good stories from history. Stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. Instead of sitting around a campfire telling stories of our ancestors, we are coming to you from the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. We are coming with stories to tell, and we hope you'll listen. With us today in the studio are our three co-hosts, Professor Rick Ruth, Research Associate Dr. Lorraine Patterson, and Associate Professor Thomas Burgess. In the final episode of this two-part series, we'll hear the remarkable story of the two Martines, two young women who both claim to be the long-lost Vietnamese daughter of the Emperor of Central Africa, and who both became hopelessly entangled in the violent intrigues of the Emperor's last years in power. As Picasso consolidated his power, his mind turned to Martine, the Vietnamese daughter he'd left behind in Saigon when she was only two months old. Because he'd completely lost contact with her mother, Nguyen Thi Hue, Picasso turned to his French allies who contacted the French embassy in Saigon. Several months later, with much pomp and ceremony, the French produced Martine, who was now 17, and had been selling cigarettes on the streets of Saigon. She'd been living in a shack made of flattened beer cans and facing prejudice due to her half Vietnamese, half African heritage. The Saigon newspaper Chan Den published a story of how Martine was plucked from poverty to become the princess of diamonds as the mining of these precious gems was one of the only things the Vietnamese public knew about the Central African Republic. In late November 1970, Martine boarded a plane for the 11,000-mile journey to see her father. Though she arrived in Bangui at 4.30 a.m., a visibly moved Bukasa and thousands of his cheering countrymen were on hand to greet her. The radio broadcasted messages of welcome and traditional chiefs and praise singers lavished her with tributes. The banquets, dances and balls in her honor went on over several days. However, within a few weeks, rumors started to swirl in Saigon. The newspaper Chan Den now claimed that Martine and her mother were actually imposters. And the real Martine was spending her days hauling 110-pound cement bags in a Saigon factory. A Paris paper quoted Tran Van Lam, Saigon's Minister of Foreign Affairs, saying, We haven't dared tell Bokassa yet, but there are at least 17 other candidates for the role of Martine Bokassa. The name Martine was especially popular at this time because of a famous French actress, Martine Carroll. Eventually, Tranden produced the real Martine's birth certificate and she was put on a plane for Bangui. Tearfully, Bukasa welcomed her and her mother who accompanied her. His long-lost daughter showed him some snapshots taken years before and her mother reminded him of a Saigon motorcycle accident in which she'd broken a finger. 
Convinced this Martine was the real thing, Picasso now faced a decision about what to do with the first Martine, as rumors started to swirl that she was actually a French spy. He was furious with the French, whom he believed had engineered the whole incident to embarrass him. At first, Picasso wanted to send her back to Saigon, but then he changed his mind. To show the world his amazing generosity, he would adopt the first Martine as his own daughter on his 50th birthday. There would not just be one, but two rags to riches stories, two fairy tales and two Cinderella's. The imposter was referred to as Martine Kete, meaning small Martine, and Bukasa's real daughter was known as Martine Kota, or Big Martine. The part that I find most affecting is the strange turns of fortune in the lives of the young women known as the Martines. The double cliche would be that they go from rags to riches, only to find themselves out of the frying pan and into the fire, or, or into the firing squad uh, in this case. But their stories defy any cliches or pat phrases. They're almost unique in a way. As children of African fathers in South Vietnam, they would have no doubt have been having a difficult young adulthood after an undoubtedly difficult childhood. I'm more familiar with the plight of the children known as Amerasians, the offspring of Vietnamese mothers and American fathers during the, this period. But I can only imagine that the children of French colonial soldiers and Vietnamese mothers had hard childhoods likely marked by deprivation, abuse, sadness, and loss. In addition to suffering social enmity brought on by ethnic chauvinism and racism of the Vietnamese communities that they lived in during this period, they were growing up in the midst of a war, uh, amidst armies that were powerful and, and destructive. These children didn't have fathers around, and many of them were abandoned to orphanages by their mothers. We know from the published accounts written by children of Vietnamese mothers and foreign fathers from this period that the children definitely did suffer on many levels. We see that in the Martine scant biographies, with one selling cigarettes in the streets while the other is said to be carrying cement bags to survive. And yet, despite all the problems that they had in Vietnam, I can't help but think that in the case of at least one of them, as we'll see further in this historical tale, that they would have been better off remaining in war-torn South Vietnam, despite the dangers and discrimination. Um, I just want to agree with you, Rick, really, and say that it's the kinds of prejudice that they would have faced at the time in Vietnam would have been quite extreme. We know this from accounts of the time. We know this from Amerasian children later. And one thing that is striking is that both of them were still living with their mothers because, as you would well know from reading later accounts, many of these children ended up living on the street without any relatives whatsoever. Uh, I just wanted to point out that uh, it's so easy sometimes to write off all African dictators as monsters. Here we see a very human side to Bacasa. I think he was rather sincere in wanting to welcome Martin to his capital of Bangui. And there doesn't seem to be at least a lot of political calculation here. He just honestly wanted to be reunited with his long-lost daughter. So this is a human side to him. And maybe he felt that she was... A reminder of a, of a particular time of his life when he was a young officer in, in French pay, 
a time when he was, you know, young and maybe he was was nostalgic about this time of his life when even with a war and being in a foreign land full of danger, there there were also many potential friends. I take your point, Thomas, but I also think that Bukasa enjoyed building up his stature and part of that was having a very large family and in adopting the first Martin, he was also adding to this large clan of which he was the father. So we could say it shows a human side to him, but I also think it's part and parcel of him considering himself to be a sort of uber-African chief. Both Martins settled in Bangui, and in what amounted to a sort of marriage auction, Bukasa offered local men the opportunity to marry both of them. Faded black and white photos from February 1973 show the two Martins on their shared yet lavish wedding day, wearing identical white dresses and receiving the same presents. Martin Kede, the first Martin, married Fidel Obru, an Air Force officer, and Martin Koda, Bukasa's real daughter, married Bukasa's personal doctor, Dr. Dede Vode. Both Vietnamese mothers were on hand to witness the ceremony. For a time, the two Martins settled down to domestic life with their husbands. The adopted Martine became pregnant and no doubt hoped she would go on with her relatively safe and privileged life for many years to come. And yet it was not to be. Politics, ambition and cruelty intervened to turn her Cinderella story into a terrible tragedy. Her husband was reserved, yet charming on occasion. With money given to him by Bukasa, Captain Obru purchased two Bangi movie theaters and spent the proceeds on cars, women, and clothes. Despite Bukasa's patronage, Captain Obru despised him and gathered a group of ambitious young officers wanting to assassinate him. In February 1976, they made their move. As Bokasa was about to board a plane at Bangui's airport, one of the conspirators tossed a grenade at him. Though it landed only a few feet away, it failed to detonate. Seeing this, the plotters who were supposed to gun down Bokasa's entourage lost their nerve and slipped away. Although stunned by the attempt on his life, Bokasa rallied his men, his men to round up and arrest the conspirators most of whom were sentenced to death or imprisonment. Before sending Obru off to the firing squad, Bukasa confronted his son-in-law saying, you married my daughter. I spent money on you and you dared to turn against me. And then you insulted me saying that I was a pygmy. A few hours after her husband's execution, the adopted Martine went into labor. Bukasa, instructed Dr. Dedi Vode, the husband of the real Martine, to attend to her. And if she gave birth to a boy, the doctor was to kill him by lethal injection. It was a boy. And Dr. Dedi Vode obediently administered the poison. The baby turned blue, went into a coma, and died. 
He would never grow up to avenge his father. Martine was devastated and now only had one goal in sight, to return to Saigon. She bided her time and after a year asked if she could go home. Bukasa agreed, although the last thing he wanted was the world to find out he'd ordered the murder of her husband, an infant child. What happened on the day of her departure is the cause of much speculation. The renowned German filmmaker Werner Herzog suggested she was thrown from a plane shortly after it took off from Bangui Airport, but that seems unlikely. Instead, what is more probable is that her bodyguards strangled her on the way to the airport and buried her not far from the airport road. She never returned to Vietnam, that much is sure, and to this day the location of her remains are unknown. The poor girl who faced prejudice because of her mixed parentage and who survived by selling cigarettes on the streets of Saigon had her life tragically cut short by events outside her control. Another aspect that is both touching and unsettling in this story is that the two Martins and their husbands cannot untangle themselves from each other's fate. We see this in their shared marriage ceremonies and other common bonds. And one horrific element of this shared fate is that, uh, as you just pointed out, Lorraine, one Martine's husband has to kill the child of the other Martine. It's a ghastly for all of them. Also, Bacasa's order to kill the child if it is a boy suggests a gendered fear of that boy growing up uh, with the obligation to avenge his father's killing. And this is a powerful obligation in many cultures throughout history, including our own contemporary history. And yet it's not something that Bokasa, despite all of his glorious accomplishments, ever achieves. Uh, the French colonial enterprise caused the death of his father, and he does not get revenge on it. Instead, he serves it, as Thomas pointed out, that he, he ends up serving the French in numerous capacities and even slavishly imitating them. Yeah, I just wanted to point out also that, um, you know, Bacasa is thought of as one of Africa's worst dictators. But then again, he didn't provoke a war. He didn't provoke a rebellion. He didn't commit genocide. But what he did do were these spectacular murders um, that in total numbered probably in the hundreds. And so the, the spectacular quality of his, of his violence as what launched him or catapulted him into the worst ranks of African dictators ever, at least by reputation. But actually, in terms of mortality figures, this is relatively small in comparison to what we could talk about. As Thomas mentioned, Martine was only one of several hundred who died at the hands of Bukasa's security apparatus. 
Her disappearance was not especially noteworthy at the time, especially since all her family and relations were on the other side of the world. Most citizens of Bangui were instead fixated on Bokassa's new campaign to crown himself emperor, just like his hero, Napoleon Bonaparte. Though his country was virtually bankrupt, Bokassa's imperial coronation cost $25 million, a sum equal to one-third of his country's annual budget. Yet, Bokassa convinced the French to pay up for this, insinuating that if they didn't, they might lose access to the Central African Republic's valuable uranium reserves. To sweeten the deal, Bukasa offered to break relations with Libya, despite Bukasa's recent and brief conversion to Islam. Bukasa mobilized what was left of his country's ramshackle civil service to ensure a glorious coronation. Bangui's streets were spiffed up. Buildings were painted and beggars hounded into hiding. He commissioned French craftsmen to create a massive gold-plated throne in the form of an eagle with outstretched wings. He ordered an imperial carriage from France to be pulled by eight white horses imported from Belgium. For his coronation ceremony, he ordered a pearl-studded toga and a 39-foot-long crimson velvet and ermine cloak embroidered in gold lit up with thousands of pearls and over a million crystal beads he had a golden crown studded with diamonds the largest of which was 80 carats and for his guests Bukasa ordered 60 brand new mercedes-benz cars to drive them around 40,000 bottles of wine and 24,000 bottles of champagne Bukasa wanted the Pope to preside at his coronation, but His Holiness declined the invitation as well as almost all world leaders. Only the Prime Minister of Mauritius showed up. Not even neighboring dictators like Mobutu accepted the invitation. Bukasa surmised that Mobutu and the others were just jealous because he had an empire and they didn't. Bukasa wanted to grab the world's attention and succeeded. A hundred journalists attended the coronation as well as the festivities, fireworks, and parades that followed. To Bacasa's surprise, they were contemptuous of his wasteful imperial fantasies. And so were most Africans. According to Tidley, they alternated between embarrassment and rage. Kenya's Sunday nation referred to Bacasa's clowning glory. The coronation was seen to epitomize the worst Western stereotypes of the African continent. Guess I'm not surprised that uh, Pope Paul VI declined Bacasa's invitation to attend his uh, self-crowning. The efforts at uh, imitating Napoleon with a carriage and classical costuming and all the accoutrements for a grand spectacle. I mean, the throne is mind-boggling. Uh, you should look it up and 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 see what it looks like. It's stunning. But all of this excess is enough, I think, to scare off any pope. Uh, the original story of Napoleon summoning the pope, Pope Pius VII, to Paris only to crown himself emperor and sort of leaving the pope standing around uh, looking slightly silly should have tipped off uh, Pope Paul that any journey to Central Africa would be a thankless and embarrassing errand. So I guess I'm, I'm not surprised he declined. 
But I should point out that I remember a lot of this from my childhood. I remember the, the stories, um, even the global ridicule and disgust uh, that the world's journalists generated about Bacasa at this time. I remember it uh, also in the context of similar stories about Uganda's leader Idi Amin and Zaire's strongman uh, Mobutu Sese Seko. And if I recall correctly, uh, CBS News made a, a 60 Minutes episode about Bacasa, maybe from a slightly uh, later part of his, uh, his rule, that included footage of these uh, excesses and accusations of cannibalism uh, that caused a sensation uh, when it was broadcast. Uh, it was presented with a, a narration that went something like, if you thought Idi Amin was bad, wait till you find out what Jean Bidel Bacasa did. This kind of sensational news coverage goes a long way toward explaining the Western news media's role in generating a stereotype that was applied and still lingers over African leaders today. I think even if some of these um, ideas could be thought of as Western stereotypes, not all of these allegations are untrue. I think there's plenty of evidence of the extreme brutality of Bacasa's rule that cannot be easily dismissed as French disinformation or disinformation coming from other sources. And some of this actually relates to cannibalism. Yeah, I can see that, that uh, I think like a lot of stereotypes, I'm sure it has its, uh, its roots in some kind of truth. I guess my point was that it's difficult sometimes to get Westerners who aren't knowledgeable about African history to view African leaders from any country or any period as anything more than uh, something like the cruel dictators that we see in Mobutu and Idi Amin, and in this case, Bokassa. And as far as some of the more uh, shocking, I guess, uh, aspects of this tale are concerned, I'm willing to believe that there is some kind of truth buried under even the sensational claims that the news media picked up and, uh, and used to, to sell their news program. Yeah, and as for the cannibalism accusations, as fellow Southeast Asianists, Rick and myself, I mean, we can both testify that the ingestion of enemies was not uncommon during times of extremity in parts of Southeast Asia, notably Cambodia, during the Khmer Rouge regime in which eating the livers of enemies was considered to be a way to assume control of their power so this idea of eating the body parts of your enemies is certainly not restricted to the African continent. No, in fact, I think there are stories out of the Chinese Civil War uh, between the Guomindang and Mao's communist forces where the armies are doing the same thing to each other. Yeah, going back to Bacasa, I think a couple things are clear. And one is that he wanted his people to think that he possessed supernatural powers and that often meant that he was a cannibal, that he ingested the powers of his enemies. And so he was perfectly happy with, with this reputation among his own people of being a cannibal, but he was bitterly opposed to this idea of this, of this accusation in, in the Western media. Um, if there was one thing that he objected to, it was probably that. So 
As, as far as Brian Tightly is concerned, one of his chief biographers, he thinks the evidence is only, it's unconfirmed that he committed cannibalism. Um, it's not exactly clear what happened uh, in his you know, kitchen in Bangui and elsewhere. French were willing to support Bocasse's absurd pretensions and brutal behavior, but only to a point. In 1979, student protests broke out in Bangui over the issue of school uniforms. The emperor decreed that all students must now wear uniforms, yet their parents in the civil service had not been paid in months. Even worse, they could only purchase uniforms from one of the emperor's many state-subsidized business enterprises. Briefly, the students in their thousands seized control of several Bangui neighborhoods and erected barricades. But then Bukasa sent in his elite imperial guard, which managed to restore order. Yet the students did not give up. In the weeks that followed, they organized and distributed pamphlets calling for the overthrow of the regime. They launched school boycotts. Bacasa ordered his forces to arrest the instigators, of which about 100 died in jail, either from overcrowded conditions or because their captors beat them to death. Some alleged a drunken Bukasa personally took part in the beatings of these schoolchildren, smashing their skulls with his royal scepter. In response, the French suspended most of their aid and developed schemes to oust Bukasa from power. By this point, even old friends and fellow African dictators like Mobutu supported his removal. The French decided to strike while the emperor was out of the country and another trip to Libya in search of aid to prop up his increasingly bankrupt regime. Though Gaddafi agreed to give him what he wanted, it was too late. French paratroopers known as the Barracudas had already landed in Bangui, seized control of the city and announced the formation of a new regime led by David Dako, whom Bukasa deposed back in 1965. Bukasa's imperial guard offered no resistance. With Bukasa now in exile in Côte d'Ivoire, his loyal supporters were vulnerable to arrest. One such was Dr. Dedi Vodi, who went on trial in Bangui for the murder of Martine Obru's baby boy. The nurse, Yvonne, told the court that when the doctor poisoned the baby, he was acting on Bukasa's instructions. Nevertheless, the doctor was given the death penalty and sent to the firing squad. Thus, of the two Martins and their respective husbands, only one protagonist survived the Bukasa regime, Martin Kuda, Bukasa's biological daughter. Eventually, she moved to the island of Corsica, where today she runs a Vietnamese restaurant with the assistance of her mother and never, ever talks to journalists. I like that the... 
French military appear as a deus ex machina in the story by using their paratroopers to crush the regime of a former French colonial soldier, one of their own shock troops from a different era, just as he seems to be hitting his uh, nadir of cruelty, bloodshed, and murder. The French floating in from the sky provides an amusing and unsettling cyclical aspect to this story. But human history, I sometimes say to my students, would be funny if it wasn't so awful most of the time. Uh, but my favorite Napoleonic illusion in this story is that the surviving Martine moves to Corsica, Napoleon's birthplace, to open a restaurant. She's an Afro-Asian woman, somewhat of an outsider in her homeland uh, and in her adopted homelands, a person who survived war and deprivation and terror around the world, a street urchin and a daughter of an emperor who ends up nonetheless thriving in a French-Italian Mediterranean island. Uh, I know she has a son who's a bit of a French celebrity, a, a socialite and a novelist. I, I sometimes see his face in the tabloids. But it makes me think that the real Martine's ultimate fate is as unexpected an ending as anything you can imagine in history. Yeah, I just want to point out that Bacasa's life in exile was pretty dismal. All his wives abandoned him. His favorite Catherine seized most of his wealth and properties. And then living in Cote d'Ivoire, Picasso was known to go on drunken sprees for days on end, full of rage towards the French whom he felt had betrayed him. So, but eventually though, he decided to relocate to one of his chateaus that he still possessed in the French countryside. And he lived there for several years on a very small income, so small that he couldn't pay his utility bills. Some of his kids were even picked up for shoplifting. Um, and getting tired and feeling, feeling old, he imagined that if he returned to his country in Central Africa, he would have a, have a triumphant return. Instead, when he did come back to Bangui, he was immediately arrested um, and then brought to trial. So this was actually another time in which he captured the world headlines. The hundreds of journalists descended on Bangui for his trial in which all of these accusations of cannibalism were aired and so forth. Um, he was, he was uh, sentenced to death. The sentence was commuted to life imprisonment, house arrest effectively, and, and that's how he died basically in 1997, still under house arrest. It's funny, the international attention that his trial gets is almost a, a kind of mirror image of his uh, coronation as, as emperor, that uh, the, the world's press descending to see uh, Bokassa, but not on a throne, but in a jail cell. Uh. Right. Yeah, it is ironic, yes. I think it's also very interesting to think about how there's been a kind of resurgence of nostalgia for the Bukasa regime in the Central African Republic. From all we've talked about today, you'd think this would not be possible, but there's been several news reports in the last few years that due to the fact the Central African Republic has gone through incredibly difficult periods of civil war, the sort of supposed stability that Bukasa brought to the country for a period of time means that there are people who look back on it with a kind of selective nostalgia, much as we can see Russians of a certain age 
be re- be nostalgic about the kind of stability that Stalin brought to the Soviet Union. And I think that's another interesting part of the Bokassa legacy as well as the fact his son has been involved in politics in the Central African Republic. One of his many sons is a member of parliament and has talked quite a bit about his father's legacy and how he thinks of him with, through sort of rose-colored glasses. Yeah, that's very interesting how people's memories transform history into something very different than what it was. But but you're right, certainly the violence of the regime only touched some people and not others. It wasn't a, a generalized insecurity like the conditions of war that his country has experienced more recently. So, Thank you for tuning in to our latest episode of Tell Me Another. We hope you liked what you heard and will join us again for our next episode as we bring you the story of Poggio Bracciolini, a man who dedicated much of his life to the discovery of ancient Roman manuscripts and in doing so, helped inspire a revolution in Western thought.